This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. It's now my pleasure to introduce Daniel Lurie, CEO and founder of Tipping Point Community. Uh, I am especially thrilled to say that Dan is an alumnus of the Goldman School of Public Policy who received his MPP in 2005. And in fact, in 2005, when he was doing his advanced policy analysis, his capstone project, the focus of this was, in fact, the tipping point concept. And so, as with so many things, uh, it turns out that capstone projects actually do have a life and do move on and actually make a difference in the world, and that's really exciting. Uh, Tipping Point Community fights poverty right here in the Bay Area. It raises hundreds of millions to educate, employ, house, and support the 1.7 million people in the Bay Area, too poor to meet their basic needs. Daniel and Tipping Point exemplify so much of what we strive for here at the Goldman School evidence-based policies that improve the world we live in. And please join me in welcoming to the stage Daniel Lurie. Daniel. Thank you. So, Dan, tell me about Tipping Point, how the concept came to you and what you thought it was going to be in 2005 and what it's become. Okay. Well, uh, I am like Annette, and I am... I can tell you I barely made it through statistics and econ, and I'm surprised you all, Dean Knox, graduated me. Um, uh, but I had a great experience from 2003 to 2005. Um, but if you'll indulge me, I'd just take a quick step back. I was born and raised in San Francisco. Uh, I grew up a Bear fan. Uh, I went to Duke undergrad, but I obviously ended up here. I have many connections to the school, but I do have to uh, shout out a a relative, uh, Mr. Goldman right here, uh, who is younger than me, um, (laughs) but whose grandfather, Richard, literally saved my brother's life um, one afternoon. Uh, My brother was choking on a peach pit, and Richard gave him the Heimlich while my dad and I sat there going... What do we do? I was very little, but so I'm indebted to the Goldmans in so many different ways. Um, so I have some crazy lineage uh, dating back here at Berkeley. So it's, I, I just have to say, if my stepfather Peter Haas was here, he'd be. Uh, uh, I don't. I think he'd be a, a little surprised that I was up on stage, um, <laughs> but I, I am honored to be here with uh, former Chancellor and two great deans in this room, and it's just, it's a, it's a pleasure. Um, but I grew up in this family that pushed philanthropy, that pushed being part of the community, that said that we had it really good, and it was our obligation to be part of a better Bay Area. And so I learned that from an early age. I, I, I went off to Duke, and then I worked on Bill Bradley's presidential campaign. He talked during his whole tenure running against Al Gore about the 35 million kids that were uninsured, uh, or 35 million people that were um, uninsured in this country, the 12 million kids that were going to school hungry at that time, and 
the fact that we had a presidential candidate talking about issues of poverty is not something that you hear uh, too often on the trail these days. And so he spoke to me. Uh, I ended up in New York City after a couple of different jobs. I ended up at the Robin Hood Foundation in New York. Um, and they were focused on fighting poverty there in that region. And almost from the beginning, I thought this is a model that we didn't have in the San Francisco Bay Area. We have great family foundations. We have some great community foundations. And now they, the coffers of our community foundations have swelled over the last number of years. But we did not have something that brought people together who were not necessarily, necessarily from San Francisco or from the Bay Area. Um, and I thought giving back would be more fun as a group. Um, and I just loved what they did. And so I learned from them and came back here and spent two years studying at the Goldman School and plotting and planning uh, how to start Tipping Point. And the initial co-founders, there's four of us that founded this. Uh, one, everybody, most people know, is Ronnie Lott, uh, former San Francisco 49er, one of the best football players of all time, but he's actually a better person um, than he was a football player, and that's saying something. Uh, Katie Schwab, Page, and Chris James, and the four of us started in 2005. Uh, we started with 100 donors the first year. Uh, we started with four issue areas, housing, employment, or, or, uh, family wellness, and education. We really haven't diverged from that too much. Um, but we had 100 donors that first year. We made seven grants. We raised about $450,000. And last year, uh, we raised $95 million. We had four or 5,000 donors. And we are now, and my, my, one of my idols in the political world, David Crane, uh, has pushed us at Tipping Point to not just be about nonprofits, uh, we fund 40-plus direct service groups, but we are also getting involved in the policy arena. And that's enough for me, and now I'll take your questions. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that uh, increasingly nonprofits are worried about is making sure that the philanthropy they do actually has an impact. Yeah. And Robin Hood was very much about, the Robin Hood Foundation in New York City was very much about that kind of concern. How do you do that? I mean, uh, so there's going to be a policy wonk thing, by the way. I apologize, but that's what we do. So how do you make sure that the money you're dispersing actually has an impact? Well, I am not as wonkish as you are, um, but we, we have wonks on staff that, okay. that teach me. Um, like I said, econ and stats were not my strong suit. But uh, <laughs> early days, uh, we had a cost-benefit ratio. Uh, we were thinking about... Um, Dollar spent, dollar out. Uh, we were thinking about, you know, if we gave this group $100,000, what it would mean in output, economic output. Um, we have always felt like that we were ahead of the curve on holding our groups accountable. Um, we, when we make a grant to a group, we say we're with you for the long haul, but we are going to measure, and we are going to measure early and often. Um, and we have evolved over the years, but if a group has not made the cut, uh, we work with them, we give them a year, we put them on review status, and then if they're still not working, then we will end a relationship. We have, we have ended relationships with 20% of our groups over the years. So we are not a funder that just says, uh, okay, you're doing 
God's work and, and, and go forth, uh, we want to see an impact. And so where we are to date um, and right now with our groups, and we've evolved on this, in our employment portfolio, we want students and clients to come out of those jobs with $30 an hour jobs. Uh, it's no longer okay to make the minimum wage. Um, and so that's where we're going to. Uh, in our education and portfolio, we're trying to get kids to the point where they aren't just getting to college, but they're getting through college. So we're talking about college success more pointedly than we've ever before. We, we spend 40% of our dollars on education uh, right now, but we were, we've been all over the place. We've been at you know, teacher, uh, improve, you know, teacher effectiveness. We've been in you know, after-school programming, charter schools. And now we're going to go to a place where we can actually measure whether or not they're getting kids graduating from college. Uh, the early childhood field we're just jumping into. So our family wellness portfolio just evolved into early childhood. You all know the biggest factor there is are they kinder ready? So all of our portfolios, we're trying to get to a point where we can measure the outcomes and the successes of our groups down to that point. Now, the big question is, can we get down the number of people living in poverty in our region? Um, and that is a tough question to answer because we're talking about a trillion dollar economy and we, last year, our core grant making budget was $25 million. Are we gonna be able to impact a trillion dollar economy? I'm not gonna sit here and say we are. Um, but if we can prototype, if we can highlight examples and then work with our partners in government, we can help scale those solutions. And that's, eventually, that's our goal always. Well, well, in fact, do you think that by emphasizing measurement and outcome that you help discipline the nonprofit sector so that more and more nonprofit entities start thinking that way? I mean, there, is, there are cynics who say the nonprofit sector lives off the fact that philanthropists uh, feel good about giving the money, but they don't really care what happens to it because yep. they just feel good about giving it. Yep. And the change in philanthropy has been, no, we actually want Wanna. to have an impact. And do you feel that's now having an impact on the sector with the various units starting to say, yeah, you know, we got to think about these things? No, ab absolutely. And I think um, our pressure on our groups and our and and we're speaking on behalf of our donors and on our board and our leadership council i will tell you more donors say to me oh, i'm so happy that you measure and you hold the groups accountable um but they do like hearing the stories more than they like looking at the data um and so it, it's interesting what we've what we've learned over 14 years is the storytelling still wins the day um but for our hardcore donors, and we do have those, the data does help. And it has, I think, moved the sector forward. Now, having said that, I do think it's, it's ironic that business leaders who are very good at their job, um, and they are very skilled at whether it's you know, managing their own fund or picking stocks, um, and they've spent 20, 25 years doing it, they get into their philanthropic career, their, that part of their life, and they're like, they lose all capacity that they had in their, they, they think that they can be just as good at that, and they think it's really easy to give away money. 
It's not. You have to actually work at it to do it well. I mean, in this case, making the money was easier for them, and now giving it away, they, they forget that they should hold groups accountable and measure. So that's an interesting thing that happens often. So today we had a talk uh, at the board meeting by Rucker Johnson, who's just written a wonderful book, Children of the Dream, uh, which is all about how, in his very technical econometric way, he shows that, in fact, it's the interaction effects between things like early childhood education, uh, integration, and uh, equalizing school finance. And you put all three together and you get more than the sum of the parts. And this, in general, is sort of the pipeline idea, which uh, I was recently at the Harlem Children's Zone in New York City, which has got this pipeline notion. You've got to do a whole series of things and therefore amplify the effect. Are you trying to think more and more about that kind of model of philanthropy? We thought about that from day one. You cannot solve these huge systemic problems by saying, I'm just going to do employment training and get somebody a job and get a, a, a single mother a, a paying job at $30 an hour. That's not enough if, if her two kids don't have great, high-quality, early childhood education or that they don't have access to affordable housing or that they don't have access to great health care or even good health care. Uh, and so that's why we've had our portfolio approach. Four areas, housing, education, early childhood, and employment. Uh, you can't do it any other way. So once again, another example of someone who's really smart, and, and, and that book sounds like it's spot on. Yeah, no, it's a wonderful book. I recommend it. Children of the Dream comes out next week. I think it's going to be a, a bestseller, actually. It's exceptionally well-written. And it really uses very high-powered econometric research, but presents it in ways that are quite accessible. So uh, put it on your reading list. Um, so do you try to actually coordinate across different groups to make sure that, in fact, they sort of have this interactive cumulative effect? You know, we, so there was two other students in my class that worked on helping with their APAs that did support around t building Tipping Point. And... Rob Hope, who worked at Rubicon Programs and now is at the San Francisco Foundation, actually pulling different funders together around employment. Um, Rob said that we needed to get our leaders, whether it was our first seven groups or now our 40 groups, we needed to keep them in a cohort-type manner and keep them learning together. Our senior program officers, until about a year and a half ago when we kind of have started to refocus and re-strategize around, around those metrics that I talked about earlier. Um, they were responsible for funding in the East Bay. One senior program officer, East Bay, one San Francisco and Marin, and one in the South Bay, and trying to coordinate a housing group, education group, and put all the groups together. It didn't work as well as we would have liked. And so now we have a head of early childhood, a head of employment, and so that these leaders of these really high, we think, best-in-class nonprofits or groups that can become best-in-class with our support uh, can work together and learn together. We have 30-plus trainings a year for our organizations, whether they be around mental health trainings or just everyday trainings that they need to help run their businesses more effectively. We try to bring them together and, and connect the dots for them. Mm -hmm. So... The big actor in this area is obviously government. 
What are your thoughts about government? Is it learning to do this stuff better? Have you been able to help them get better at it? And what are the challenges for government to do this better? So we, two years ago, two and a half years ago, and actually for the first, let's call it 10, 11 years of tipping point, people said, you got to do policy. You have to do policy. And I said, I went to policy school. I know. Um, I, uh, I know. <laughs> so I really believe that, you know, it's raining right now. Right. We have these funds. And I did not talk about our model at all, but every dollar in goes out. We have no endowment. So uh, when we raise $25 million for core fundraising, we give out the $25 million the next year. So our board covers all of our overhead. So that's a huge differentiator for us. So we are not an endowed foundation, just um, to be clear. And like Annette said, we also need money every year. So maybe we can battle Annette. But I, I'll let you have tonight. You can have it tonight. Um, uh, so is gov- So two years ago and for years, people said, jump in on education, jump in on employment. Homelessness was front and center in San Francisco, and now over the last few years has become front and center in Berkeley. Maybe not just the last few years, but it's a crisis throughout this region. It's a crisis in the state. We raised $100 million to tackle chronic homelessness in San Francisco. Uh, The point in time count two years ago had a count of 7,500 people that are homeless in San Francisco. It's low. Um, 2,100 of those are chronically homeless, which means they've been out on the street for more than a year and have a disabling condition, usually multiple conditions, whether it's drug and alcohol dependency, usually co-occurring. We jumped in and we said we're going to partner with the city on this because our $100 million, which will be spent down over a three- to four-year period, the city and county of San Francisco probably spent $100 million in this first quarter on that issue probably in the first month or two. There's a number out there that says the city of San Francisco is spending $300 million a year on homelessness. It's not, that is not the right number. The right number is closer to a billion dollars, and that's before the Prop C, the new tax on, on businesses, that, by the way, is being held in escrow right now. It is not, it is not flowing to this issue. Um, we have a three-pronged approach to this to tackling this issue. One, create more housing. Two, prevent people from falling into homelessness. And our third bucket is optimize the public sector. We have a monthly meeting with the chief of staff to Mayor Breed. We have a monthly meeting with Jeff Kaczynski, who runs HSH in San Francisco. Uh, I'm meeting with Grant Colfax, the new Department of Public Health head, in two days. Grant has a $2.3 billion budget in the Department of Public Health. So every other department just pales in comparison uh, to his. But, uh, so I'm excited about that opportunity. We've had a real, obviously with Mayor Lee's passing, which was just tragic, um, we had some leadership challenges in the city and county of San Francisco. It looks like we will have a mayor for at least a five-year stint. Um, her number one issue, homelessness. The governor's... Number one issue, housing. Number two issue, homelessness. Um, what I have seen over the last couple of years is, at least around this issue, government understands that this is such a grave crisis. I think business leaders understand that it's a grave crisis. 
Um, I think if you ask business leaders, it's housing and homelessness and transportation. We're going to choke. We're choking, I think, the economy of California at this point. And I think if we don't attack those two issues, um, and by the way, our education system is not flourishing at the moment either, but those two issues will, I think, kill our incredible economy. Have I seen... This is why I think the private sector and the public and the nonprofit sector are so important to uh, incense governments to do better with their dollars. Obviously, that's where the dollars are, no matter whoever wants to cut. If conservatives want to cut, 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 fine, um, but that's still where the dollars are. I'm only two and a half, three years into working really closely with government. Um, I think th this room has a better sense of if government's getting it or not, and you have a better sense than that. So I'll... Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm, I'm really intrigued with what you think because I think uh, it, we really need models to help yep. government get better at what it does. Uh, I'm a big believer that government does great things, but let's face it, it always doesn't always do them well. And so it needs models of how to do it better, and the kinds of things you're doing seems to me could be those kinds of models. So... I, you know, what, what are your thoughts? What, are you, are you well, just optimistic, or no? So what I would say is, what, what I would say is, we're, we're we're working much more closely in Sacramento. Mm -hmm. We've helped pass a number of bills as it relates to homelessness in mm -hmm. Sacramento um, over the last twelve to twenty-four months. Um, we're working with a couple of graduate students here at the Goldman School on reducing uh, fines and fees in San Francisco and Mayor Bree. Breed just um, let's stop there to yeah. explain what we mean here, because I think what people don't realize is that we have a system, the criminal justice system right now, which often imposes fines and fees and sometimes ones that interest grows on them and all sorts of awful things. So you find people who commit relatively minor infractions and suddenly they owe enormous amounts of money uh, to the criminal justice system, which they cannot afford to pay. And that just puts them deeper and deeper into difficulty. So you'll know better than I, but there two, I was going actually just fine. I was just going to find like parking tickets. Oh, so in, sure. in Bayview, Hunter's Point, um, someone will get a ticket for parking their car for too long and it'll be $50 more than someone who's parking their car too long in Pack Heights. So you have, uh, it's disproportionately impacting low-income individuals and families. And so we worked with some Goldman students on, and, and with the Arnold Foundation and the Financial Justice Project here at, at Cal on getting those fees thrown out. The other issue that is enormous that is right now just came out of uh, Assembly Committee is that in this state there are, there's $12 billion worth of um, debt on uh, delinquent fathers who are not paying child support. Those people are not going to pay back $12 billion. And guess what? When they pay, they start paying their fee, uh, most, if not all, of the money goes to the government, not to the mother. So we are trying to work on that issue. Um, and it just got passed unanimously. A Republican actually flipped their vote today um, so that we should erase that $12 billion of debt and we should have parents who are paying child support, and I shouldn't just say it's always fathers, but predominantly fathers that owe child support, 
that money should go to the mom so it can go to the child. And so we're working on things like that. And so in that sense, I am optimistic. Whether, you, whether or not a super majority of Democrats is a, a good thing uh, for a state, um, I do think it is uh, something where we can get some things done right now. And I think you have a governor willing to take some big shots, and that's exciting to me. So some of those issues really around social justice, economic justice issues, um, I think we can make some real progress over the next few years. So I love talking data and I love talking evidence, but tell us some of the stories because I think you're right. Those are what really move us and galvanize us and, and help us move forward. I, I mean, I, I, see, I'm not the good storyteller, but, but I will tell you, I, um, a young man came into my office uh, last week. He's working at Year Up. He was at... Um, he was at BCG prior. Um, he spoke on stage two years ago in front of 1,200 people at our big benefit, and he talked about growing up, and he was in the, he was in the um, juvenile justice system. And this is, this is a kid that went through foster care, got in trouble, and he, <laughs> Daryl, came into my office last week. He's full-time job. He works a block away from our office. Um, he's 27. He's living in Oakland. Got his own. He's actually he's got a roommate. We, I have a roommate. My wife. Uh, we all have roommates now. Um, and he is doing so well. And he was asking me for advice on how to advance his career. And this is a kid seven, eight years ago was not on the right path. And now he's sitting in my office saying, "Hey, help me build my resume. Help me build my career." So we have. I mean, there's. We helped put 20,000 people last year through our 40 groups. Um, they hit milestones on a path out of poverty, and we have the, around the, the metrics that we talked about. 20,000 different stories last year happened because of Tipping Point's portfolio. I think you tell stories very well. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and it is true. That's heartening. I mean, it just makes you feel like, yes, that's, that's yeah. what we want to do. That's the kind of thing we want to do. So where do you see Tipping Point going? Is, is, are you, I, think have... it's the, I think it's having a... I don't ever want us to just be on direct service. I don't want us to ever just be on the policy side. I think to be able to pull that thread through, to be able to know what's going on on the ground, what's going on, on in our schools, in the houses, in the healthcare centers, in the early childhood centers, and be able to then explain to lawmakers why, you know, getting rid of this $12 billion worth of debt, because the state's never going to see that money, getting them to understand it, getting them to understand how, you know, the $100 check can now impact a mother and a child's life. So being able to tell the stories, show the data to our elected officials, I think being able to do both of those well is where where we're headed. Well, I could ask a lot more questions because this is fun. This is fascinating. But uh, maybe the audience would like to put forth some questions. We have microphones in the audience. Suppose I want to um, concentrate my giving on education. If I give to you, can I earmark my donation for education? Um, If you're willing to do a seven-figure gift a year, we can talk. (laughs) 
Um, we we have said we we are we have said for years that if you give to Tipping Point, you're buying the you know the whole portfolio. Um, we have made exceptions, and we are making exceptions and encouraging people if they want to give a, a, a big gift, we will direct it to one of our portfolio areas. We've had donors say, "Oh, I, I want to give you a million dollars, and I want it to just go to the Kip Charter Schools." And we'll say, "Just go, just go give to Kip," and they're great, and they're one of our port. Um, so we do not do much of the donor-directed giving, but we can have the conversation. <laughs> More questions? Oh my, this is not a shy group, yes. come on. It might be a tired group. It's been a long day. Thank you so much for inspiring us tonight. Would you describe a little more about how you tackle the homelessness? I mean, you've described a touch so, of it. Sure, uh, thank you for that question. So. Three buckets, create more housing, I'll start there. One, we bought a piece of property um, in Soma. We are going to try to build a 146 unit building in San Francisco in under three years and under $400,000 a unit, which sounds mind boggling expensive, but if you consider what it currently costs and it takes six to seven years, and it costs six to $700,000 to build the same building right now. So we are gonna, once again, try to prototype how we get this done. Um, we're working with Cahill and David Baker Architects and Mercy. Um, we're investigating whether or not to use modular. We're using SB35, which has, uh, allows 100% uh, affordable housing. Ours will be permanent supportive housing for those formerly chronic homeless people that I've talked about. To move in, there'll be 220 square foot units, own kitchen, own bathroom. If you ask homeless people and if you ask people what they desperately want and need most, they want their own bathroom and their own kitchen. Um, and we are trying to prove that you can do this project. So that's one thing that we're doing. And then we're also trying to move people from permanent supportive housing into their own units, market rate units, using what are typically known as Section 8 housing vouchers. We've moved 191 people from permanent supportive housing into their own units, freeing up spots for people to move from the street into those units. The problem with that is the housing authority in San Francisco is now out. They're in receivership, they, they're financially in trouble, and so HUD will not give them more vouchers. So that part that has been so successful for us over the last 12 to 18 months is stopped. So that's Create More Bucket Prevention. We're working with UCSF on how do we create more beds, more mental health beds, subacute beds, so when people go to SF General, they're put on a 72-hour hold. Right now, they're many times and often released right back onto the street instead of into the care of someone that can, where they can get case management. So this prevention bucket, we have a, a jail pilot program right now with the sheriff's department because that's just a revolving door of people into jail, onto the street, into jail, onto the street, and how do we have housing, housing waiting for them when they come out? So that's another project. And I think I talked a little bit about the optimize the public sector in our monthly meetings. And one thing I would say on that side, there was 14 different databases tracking 
homelessness and homeless individuals and families. The city, Google, Tipping Point have been working on implementing something called the one system, so shrinking those 14 databases into one so that if DPH, the Department of Public Health, sees a client, that HSH knows that that person has been seen over here. Right now, the right hand is not talking to the left hand at all, and so we're trying to work on that, and that is not easy at all, but it needs to be done. Um, a couple of logistic questions um, and, and one preface question. Um, could you repeat again the total distributed in 2018 um, from your organization? Sure. And then the second one, logistically, is it a, is it a grant making process, but you, it sounds like you're doing a lot of work behind the scenes on, yeah. on policy issues. So just in the grant-making process, sure. is there a limit, and is there a geographic area yep. that you limit? Uh, it's a great question. I know I didn't explain the model. We are doing so many different things, but last year was a unique year in terms of the fundraising number, and I said close to $100 million. We raised after, and our fundraising year ended uh, June 30th, so I'm talking about last fiscal year. Uh, the North Bay fires hit, and we have never done relief work, but we jumped in. Um, so many of our neighbors were affected. We have never funded a NAP in Sonoma, but we raised uh, $34 million uh, for relief, and we actually um, teamed up with a lot of the business community uh, the San Francisco Giants, and we hosted a concert at AT&T Park. Um, we uh, had 40,000 people. We raised $17 million in one night, so half of the 34 came from that concert. Um, and we got all that money out the door within 10 months. Uh, and then some of the money I talked about also went to the homelessness initiative, so we have a $100 million standalone initiative on the homelessness. And then last year... We raised $25 million for core grant making, which is our bread and butter. It's the 40 groups that are doing direct service work. We fund groups in four portfolio areas, and we fund a third of the groups are here in the East Bay. We fund out to Antioch and Pittsburgh. Uh, we fund down to San Jose. We fund groups in San Rafael and the Canal, the Canal Alliance in San Rafael. And, and a third, close to a third of our groups are in San Francisco. So one of the uh, poverty allevi alleviation programs that the state has is the earned income tax credit, and there's talk about expanding it. Uh, what's your thoughts on is that an effective way uh, to help the situation or not? Um, Jesse Rothstein um, and the California Policy Lab we've been working with on the EITC um, and with Josh Friday, who you and I met with, few weeks ago, so we are working uh, behind the scenes on that as well. We think um, that's a huge leverage point, and we're leaving a lot of dollars on the table every year at, at, at the federal level, right? And so um, it's something that we've been working on with Josh and his, his crew over the last, maybe it's been about a year, um, but no, I think that's a huge leverage point that we should be tapping into as much as possible. Is that a good answer? <laughs> Jesse, of course, is a professor at the Golden School. Yes, sorry. Policy. Yes. Jesse's been excellent. 
I'm Marv Zotterer from extrafood.org, proud to be a Tipping Point grantee. Um, about your cohort of, of grantees, what are a couple of best practices that you've learned from the nonprofits over the years in terms of what has made uh, any or all of those nonprofits most effective and most impactful in their communities? So, I mean, we've always said we look for a few different qualities. One, strong leadership, um, clean financials, uh, a willingness to measure your results to your question. And I think, you know, in our early days, we always said it's got to be in, you got to want it to be in your DNA to get into the weeds on the numbers and the metrics, because if it's not, then it's not going to be a good fit because we're going to, we're going to be working with you. And by the way, we always want to help pay for that work to be done. Um, so it's not just a, a funder saying, go measure. It's us helping them measure. And so I think just that real commitment to getting better, getting stronger. We've always loved when groups have a good leadership team in place, so it's not just the charismatic founder. Um, we like those two, and it's hard to not get fired up, and we've funded our share of that. But, but where we've seen groups really excel and get to the next level is when that next generation of leader or that leader right below the CEO or the executive director is able to also take the reins if, if something happens or someone retires. Um, so those are kind of the key things that we're looking for and usually helps make sure that they're going to be effective for the long term. Thank you. Um, in your education work, um, clearly there is a set of cross-sector issues when we look at public schools versus charters, both public and private. Mm-hmm. Um, there, the, the initial conception of charters was to be something of a sort of lab environment that could identify uh, solutions that could be scaled up and adapted into the normal public schools. Do you, and the conception now obviously is that they're in direct competition with each other. Do you see opportunities to create collaborative relationships and to bring back some of that ethic to the, uh, to the charter movement? If, if we had a little more civility, as I know folks here have been working on uh, for 50 years now, um, uh, if we had more ability to talk to each other, then yes, I think that could happen. And I do agree. We, uh, Marshall Tuck, who ran for State Board of uh, Superintendent, um, was in our office and is, is actually consulting with us on how we think about our education portfolio going forward. And he explained that there were good examples of charters and public schools working together down in L.A. Um, uh, he was actually very complimentary of who... Uh, the, may, uh, the governor just appointed as the head of education, and I'm blanking on her name. She's from Stanford. Linda Darling-Hammond, thank you. Um, and, and so, listen, uh, Don Fisher, who was one of the big backers of KIPP charter schools, said that charters were not the answer. He said that 15 years ago. I've never said that charters are the answer, but charters, once again... I think can be labs for innovation if they're not looked at as the sworn enemy of the teachers union. Um, And so uh, I still think that there are some great charter schools out there that 
the public schools can learn from. And there's some terrible charter schools out there. Uh, we, t we try to find the ones that really work. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's tough right now. I think it's not an ideal time to be a, uh, someone that's a proponent of charter schools. Um, I think the governor has uh, not been uh, as supportive as he used to be on charter schools. Um, and, you know, the, I'm probably getting out of my depth here, uh, but I, I, I wish there would be a, a dialogue on it because I think there's a lot to be learned. Just to follow up on the questions on homelessness, um, so I, I, I heard your th at least a theory of dealing with homelessness that you're pursuing is provide more housing, which seems both straightforward and uh, to my, it makes sense to my ears. But I'm interested in what data you compiled to convince yourselves that that was the right approach or how much you would invest in this development project you're talking yeah. about before you did convince yourself on the data? No, it's a great question. So I, the sample answer to homelessness, the best way to solve it is with a home, right? Um, I will never say that we, have to, we need to build our way out of it in San Francisco or build our way out of it in Oakland. We all need to take responsibility. I think the governor uh, su suing uh, the city down south, um, Huntington Beach, um, gee, like, great. Like, that, we need more of that type of uh, leadership. Um, now, I'm, see, I'm telling you the numbers thing I get. 180,000 jobs, I think, created something in San Francisco and over the last 10, 15 years, and about 17,000 units created of housing. You know, I think that the governor's office says there's a 1.5 million um, how, or uh, unit shortage in the state of California. I don't think you need to look very far to know that we need more housing. I'm not saying where we need to build it. I'm just saying we need to build it somewhere. And San Francisco um, needs to be part of it. And all, there's so many people that say, oh, you're going to build housing, more people will come. You're going to give people more services, more people will come. That, that is a myth that needs to be shattered because guess what the mayor of Seattle says? If we do more, people will come. Mayor of LA, more people. Every city says that they're a magnet for homelessness. And actually, I shouldn't say mayors because the mayors aren't necessarily saying that, but citizens are saying that. And then the other thing that I think is just mind-boggling to me is LA passed a huge bond more money than they've ever had for housing. The first time uh, you know, a housing, a, a new building went up for a vote in a neighborhood, shot down. The Board of Supervisors shot it down and they pushed the bond measure. We, Steve and I were talking about let's, let, you know, more taxes, more taxes. Well, we can't even get a, uh, a temporary shelter built on a port that, in, in San Francisco, and by the way, the mayor will get it done because there's, the neighbors actually can't stop it legally. They'll, they might try to stop it some other way, but she has the right to build this navigation center. If we're going to solve this problem, we all need to be okay with more housing. So, and we're not, big, we're not huge proponents of shelter, by the way. We don't fund shelter. We're not saying it's bad. We just think the best long-term solution is permanent housing. Um, and we as a 
maybe we should start just we as a region uh, need to do a better job. San Jose tonight just passed that every new housing construction site has to have 40% ELI housing, extremely low income housing. Um, we need to do stuff like that until this crisis is solved. And we all need to be okay with housing being built in our neighborhood because the nimbyism is crushing our state, I believe. The last question. Yes, uh, I'm curious on a macro level, um, you see people that are homeless everywhere in my hometown, Oakland. Mm -hmm. And I, I view it as a symptom of the bigger picture of what's going on in our society. The efforts that you're making, are they taking any kind of a dent out of what really needs to be done? It, it, it is what keeps us up at night and makes me, uh, I'm, I'm, I am incredibly proud of what we at Tipping Point in our community has done over the last 14 years. And then I wake up in the morning and I, I drive to work every day down Bush Street and you know, I saw a guy sleeping on a mattress on the sidewalk on Bush Street near the financial district, like a full-blown mattress. And I don't think that we, I feel like we haven't done anything. And so that's what keeps me going. But yes, I, we can point to the 40 groups and the schools and the kids graduating and the, you know, the stories that we talked about. And that's, that, that better be enough to keep us going because that's what we have right now. Um, and so I believe we are making a dent. I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic that we can do better as a private sector. I'm optimistic that government can get better. Uh, and yes, we're making a dent, but my God, we, we, have, we have a long, long way to go. But it is groups like this and leaders like this in this room and schools like this that help produce people that are going to keep, keep the faith and keep the hope. And uh, um, that's what we have to do at Tipping Point, and that's what you all are doing. So thank you. Well, thank you.